Hello, and welcome to another episode of Such a Nightmare, Conversations About Horror. My name is Catherine Troyer, and I am delighted to be joined by, as always, Anthony Tresca. Hey there. This is a podcast where the horrifically nerdy meets the terrifyingly academic, as we explore that fine line between the horrific and the horrible. Each episode looks at a specific horror text that is for better or worse, and in this case, it is most definitely worse, giving us nightmares. And we are so excited that you've decided to join us for our conversation on 2010's A Nightmare on Elm Street, The Reboot. This, this unfortunately brings an end to a very long journey for us. Yeah, we've we're done as of officially with this episode with the night with our journey through the Nightmare franchise. For now, uh, there are rumors of an HBO Max series for A Nightmare on Elm Street. So when that comes out, if that comes out, I guess we'll talk about that. But this concludes the franchise. As of 2021. Yeah, we started this back in, in March of 2021, and that's what happens when you're alternating it every other week. I find myself really sad, Anthony, to, to know that there's going to be potentially more nightmares, because if those nightmares are anything like this nightmare, they're not ones I'm wanting to be having. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. This one is certainly does not give a lot of hope for future Nightmare properties. Although, uh, perhaps with the new HBO Max series, these, that will be the first Nightmare since uh, the rights return to the Craven estate. And so, one might hope that maybe the family would be a little bit more picky with who gets to uh, take up the mantle of Wes Craven and continue on the legacy of A Nightmare on Elm Street. But it could also just as easily be another cash cow like this one where they just phone it in for maximum amount of profits. It's going to depend on on whether or not they they return to the core because that's what the Chucky TV show is doing, right? Is they're like, this is camp. Why are we why have we why would we ever escape camp? Mm-hmm. And so if they can return back to what is at the core of, of nightmare, which is is also this element of camp. Uh, I think I think it could be really interesting if they decide to do what I think the 2010 film did, which is just slickifying things, right? But also making things weirdly both darker, but also devoid of soul. Yeah. I really worry because the 2010 film was so problematic that I, I can't have much hope for what can come next. Well, see, I guess maybe I take the alternative route. How much worse could it possibly get? Uh, so I, I guess let's just jump in. Here we go. Here's a here's the summary of 2010's A Nightmare on Elm Street. Teenagers Nancy, Quentin, Chris, Jess, and Dean are all neighborhood friends who begin having the same dream of a horribly disfigured man who wears a tattered sweater and a glove made of knives. This man, Freddy Krueger, terrorizes them in their dreams, and the only escape is to wake up. 
But when one of them dies violently, the friends realize that what happens in the dream world is real. And the only way to stay alive is to stay awake. Yeah, intense. I've, I really appreciate, I know we've only had a couple of these so far, but I like how you still managed to make them end on these cliffhangers uh, that we're then going to completely ruin. But like, I, I'm really digging uh, these these plot summaries that you were providing. <laughs> Yeah, I wanted to just give a little primer. So, like, these, these this film was originally intended to follow a very similar design as the other Platinum Dunes remake, the Friday the 13th remake, where the writers kind of, like, gathered all of the things that they thought worked from each of the various films in the franchise and then created a single story with them. But then they eventually, obviously, scrapped that for this film and decided to use Craven's original storyline for the first film, but wanted to create, as you had alluded to, and this is what the writers say directly, a scarier film. That was their sole goal. And to that end, they decided that they wanted to remove the one line clipping Freddy, who they believed had become less scary and more comical over the year, and bring him back to his darker nature. And as such, they decided to bring back Craven's original view of Freddy, that from that that he was a child molester rather than just a child killer for this version to make it darker and more true to Craven's original vision. There's a lot to unpack there. I want to start with the with the idea of what they intended to do, which which actually sounds really interesting or interesting, right? Taking the best elements of the various films, because I think that explains. One of the feelings that I had watching this film was that I wasn't quite sure if this was supposed to be homage or remake. There were so many ways in which it was clearly trying to establish itself as its own text. Yeah. Same time, then there would be these near shot for shot moments from from the 84 film. And it was a very weird affect. I I, I agree. It felt almost like it was it was both aware that it was a remake and it was self-conscious about that, but it also wanted to, but it was also embracing the fact that it was a remake and it was like, we're going to do things a little differently. I think a great example of that comes in the third act where they, Nancy is running away from Freddie and then they're cut to that shot of the stairs where you're like, oh, it's going to be the goopy stairs. We know that what's coming mm-hmm. next, but then it doesn't do that. It go, it keeps going. Gives you enough time to think that's what it's doing, rounds the corner, and then it's a blood haul, which is, in essence, the same effect as the original, mm-hmm. but just a slightly different thing. And that was one of the better usage of that. There's a lot worse ones of that, because that one is at least slightly effective, where you're like, you used our knowledge of the original franchise to subvert our expectations and then deliver us something that is basically the same thing, but in a slightly new way. So that's the best example of it. There's a lot worse examples throughout. Right. Well, and and part of the reason that is one of the better ones is not only does it subvert our expectations, but it is also a practical effect. It is. It's one of the few. And and one of the and there were so many that it was like why 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 if you're repeating this shot, are you relying on CGI when you know perfectly well that you can do it really effectively? Uh, practically and and the one that really comes to mind is at the very beginning of the film um when chris is is sleeping in the bed and you know it's the him pushing through the wall again and they just they did it with cgi and it looks like cgi from 2010 
right? It just doesn't look good. And, and whereas it would have been so easy to do it. So there, you're right that, the, that at least this one subverted our expectations rather than being a complete copycat and subverted our expectations and then did something interesting. Yeah. Cause so that's why I wanted to start with that example. Cause I want to give them the best possible reading of what they were attempting to do and give them a fair shake because this is, it's a, it is an idea for a reboot and it is, it is in, it's clearly its own version of the thing. Unfortunately, the, the people who made this film and I largely disagree on what is most important about Nightmare. And they seem, the filmmakers as well as the central actors, they kind of mention, they kind of talk about the original Nightmare with a sort of disdain, particularly Jackie Earl Haley. He does not like the original Nightmare franchise <laughs> and films. He thought he called it um, one of the worst movies he's ever seen so this is and who and who is this person he's the person who plays freddy krueger oh, okay oh and so it's it's interesting that they taught that they are the people who are rebooting this franchise seem to not seem to be thinking that they are going to come in and correct a lot of the sense of the original and they're like we're we're going to fix all these plot holes we're going to create a more cohesive story we're going to be scarier and it's going to be super rad because it'll be really realistic now and Fundamentally, I just don't think I'm interested in exploring that in a nightmare. And that is what my largest problem is with this film. Yeah. So I find the concept of adaptations really fascinating because, because there's, the, there's the financial reason for why, why people engage in them. And that, that makes sense to me, right? Like you want money. Okay. Gotcha. But, but there is at least a discussion you know, whether or not it's, it's artificially constructed or not, there, there is a discussion in, in all of these remakes about the artistic decisions and about the desire to engage with this text. And I find it so fascinating that so often they're like, we want to remake it because it's super, it's been super beloved and super popular. And the reason it's been super beloved and super popular is because of X, but we think X is the problem. And so we're going to resolve X. And, and there's, it's, it's really strange because why else would I want to watch this film other than as a nostalgic sort of engagement? And I know there's a whole new generation, right? So there is that answer, right? Like you could pull in a whole new generation who never even sees the 1984 version because that was so long ago. But like for the the fans of the Nightmare franchise, I don't understand how you can expect them to come in with nostalgia and then just hammer that nostalgia to pieces and say, we're doing this intentionally for your own good. And that sounds like that's what that's what's happening here, right? So I want to talk about some scholarship because I, yeah, I think the scholarship that you've nabbed for today, which um, if any of our devoted listeners to this entire uh, nightmare uh, work through will n- remember, uh, there's apparently a weird amount of scholarship for this 2010 um, nightmare film in a way that there hasn't necessarily been for every single entry in the nightmare franchise yes yeah, so there were entire films that we just had to kind of like either bring in something else right or just be like sorry um there's just nothing to really tie in but this this episode dear listeners we're going to be treating you to two separate scholarships that will spread out throughout the episode so enjoy yourself feasting on the buffet of scholarship that we lay out for you. Excellent. So the first one comes from uh, a scholar named Adam Lowenstein, and he's 
He's pretty well known in the horror community. Didn't you say that you had actually yourself worked with uh, this individual? I, I have, but but worked with is is a sort of grossly inaccurate statement. He was my outside reader for my dissertation. Oh, okay. Yeah. So so when you have a dissertation, you have your committee members that are your professors at your university, and then usually have at least one professor who's at a different university who's an expert in the field who can kind of be like, hey, unbiased by the person, I can tell you these things about the the scholarship. And, and Adam Lewinstein is at the University of Pittsburgh, which is in the very uniquely wonderful position of having inherited the George Romero footage. So they have this incredible, incredible horror library, and they actually have a honor, their honor school has a faculty, staff, and student learning group that is working on thinking about questions of, of horror as a way to, to understand the world. Um, so they're just like, yeah, they're, he's, he's living my, my best life. He begins real strong, right? In his second paragraph, he says, my disappointment with Bayer's film. So he's, he's already saying like, I'm disappointed by this film. Not stem from a purist frustration with the way a classic original often gets reduced to an inferior copy or from the historian's regret that ambitious independent horror films from one era often get defanged by an ever more corporatized, ever less imaginative Hollywood in our own. So I, I like this because I, I think it's real easy to just kind of have that be the end of the discussion, right? Like, you know, that nothing is as good as the original or that like it's not as good because it's somehow just more Hollywoodized because those aren't, don't have to be truths. Right. And I mean, as you mentioned, we both have been enjoying the new direction that the Chucky franchise has decided to go. And that is, you can make an argument, that is exactly what it, it's, it's Hollywood corporatization of the franchise. They're, make, they're pumping them out, making a lot of uh, new things, but it's working, I think, in a way that yeah. something like this or like the Evil Dead remake or Texas Chainsaw remake, just, they didn't. But, and here's his argument, and this is... This is really intriguing because it connects so explicitly to things you and I've been talking about for months now. And he says, the new Nightmare and its Brethren, the other like adaptations of the 2000s, there were a whole slew of them. I just named a couple. <laughs> right. And and there's like the Hills Have Eyes, right? There were just so many, a lot of Wes Craven films right, yeah. um, that were adapted. And says, the new Nightmare and its Brethren often remember the genre-coded sensations of horror generated by the originals. But forget how that horror was embedded in ideas of community that provided the films with a cultural and political urgency. And so his ultimate argument is, is that the new nightmare scales back radically the presence of family and community, and not just in terms of like the role that the parents play or the role that families play, but, but to such a degree that there's this actual, he describes, inability to imagine community which he says is all the more striking in a digital era because that should offer more opportunities for virtual socialization. And he says, in fact, one important barometer of the film's preference for the genre markers of the past rather than the communal politics of the present is its failure to explore imaginatively the implications of digital technology. And so he's saying that like this film is just failing to, to dig deeply into the things that make the original interesting, but he's saying not just the original, right? He's saying that makes horror important. I couldn't agree 
more. It's so interesting that you use that example of digital technology because the filmmakers themselves actually reference film technology in their discussion around the film and for one of the key choices for why they moved Freddy Krueger to be from a child killer to a molester because they were like if he had just killed people they could have just googled Freddy Krueger on the internet and then they could have found him so that's why he had to be a molester because they would never write about that on the internet and that is the only time that they thought about technology and it's briefly there is some technology briefly used in this film but it's always used in the exact same way that it could have been used in the 80s just as an index to like kind of like loosely look through things which shows another way that this film franchise has failed to evolve. One of the things that had... This technology aspect is, I feel, such an interesting aspect that could have really been done to this franchise. And that was one of the things that Robert England actually talked about as being one of the reasons before the film came out as to why he was excited mm -hmm. for this film. Because he liked the idea of being able to, as he says, exploit the dreamscape using more technology, using the computer-generated imagery, and the other things that didn't exist back in 1984. However, he was he did later talk about how he was disappointed by the lack of doing that thing. Yeah, there's a, a moment when Quentin is in the bookstore and the computer says that it's going into sleep mode. And I was like, ooh, interesting. There's going to be some really fascinating element with like how computers quote sleep and how we sleep. And I got really excited. And then, and then that was it. That was that, that was truly the end of that scene. He's yeah. still in the bookstore and he's dreaming, but like there was no use. There was more use of computers or of like technology in some of the earlier nightmare films like, well, at least in one of them, Freddy has a power glove, right? Then this one. <laughs> yeah, they use the phones a lot more in the, in the original than they do in this one. Yeah, that's true. I hadn't thought about that. But that is also true that they're really not using even using their phones. And so for Lowenstein, there's just so many missed opportunities. So he talks about the fact there's this interesting moment in the film, which it is an interesting moment, or it could have been, after Quentin weirdly has that dream where he gets to know the entire backstory of Fred Krueger. He and his and uh, Nancy accuse Quentin's father of killing someone solely based on the word of children. And like, you know, like that it's possible they killed an innocent man because you can't guarantee that children aren't making stuff up. And Lowenstein says this could have been really interesting because he said this fascinating suggestion with its disturbing set of implied questions about just what monstrosity is, where and when it should be located, who exactly is responsible for it, and how might labels of guilty and innocence be distributed in the face of it, finally presents a glimmer of the sort of community critique delivered by the most powerful 1970s and 80s horror films. But then, of course, it loses that, that essence because, because this isn't a film that is asking us who's the monster, like the 1984 film is. You know, when in the 84 film, when Nancy's mom takes the gloves out of the like the basement, that is, it's it's terrifying because she's like, it's okay, Nancy. No, the, the parents still fundamentally play that same type of role where they're like, the it's, it's the same, it is the same central theme that is a, an every nightmare movie pretty much, which is, Sins of the sins of the fan, of the older affect the young, and they do that again in this one, but in no no way near as effective as you were mentioning in in that original there, because 
it is really more they don't do anything with that infallibility of memory like that with that they could have i thought that was where it was going and i was briefly back in pulled back in because i was like that's something that they didn't even attempt to do in the original that i think further complicates this because it's like of course they wouldn't they wouldn't remember if they didn't remember until this point why would they be so sure of themselves but then they immediately undermine anything that they were doing there because he did do all of the things and there yeah. was no you shouldn't have questioned the memory the parents were right yeah Lowenstein says when Nancy and Quentin discover old Polaroid in Freddy's preschool lair that chronicle Nancy's molestation by Freddy, the evidence for Freddy's guilt, the children's innocence, and the parents' moral righteousness becomes incontrovertible. And and so I, I would even push back against something you said where you said that, you know, there's still an element of the sins of the father. I don't think there is. I think that, that it's like, by the way, we happen to have killed him, but that's not really why he's back, right? He's back because he's he just wants you. I guess I meant element in the sense that it is technically in the <laughs> film. Like so many other things from this movie, it is, it, it is technically there, but it feels like a carbon copy of a carbon copy of a carbon copy from the original has been put in this of that theme which i i don't remember my philosophers as well as i probably should there's like entire movements that ask the question of you know if you make a a copy of a chair is it still the essence of a chair oh yeah in this case uh your example no no it's not still a a freddy film (laughs) by removing it so far by making it a, a carbon copy the copy is is somehow missing that the very essence that that is present um so so that's that's what um adam lowenstein is arguing and you and i i think 100 percent agree he says by shifting the emphasis away from community the new nightmare remembers horrors form but forgets its substance and i think that's a really very accurate statement yeah so there are other things i also have a problem with independent of this film being a nightmare film i don't know about you but i i just had some real problems with with the film as a film in its own right yeah i think there are plenty of problems to be had but what specifically are you referring to there are a couple of things so first i do want to praise the film for trying something at least i think they did the way that they introduced chris first makes us think that maybe she's going to be the final girl even though the other character's name is nancy right for the first little bit nancy is literally in a supporting role. She's acting as a, as a waitress to to our first cannon fodder. And then we follow Chris for a little while, right? We follow Chris more than we do Nancy. And I thought, again, here was a really interesting place to do some, some fascinating things because Chris is never shown as being the alternative to the final girl, which is usually the, the quote, slutty girl who has to die because she's, quote, so slutty. The film kind of steered clear of that. They it didn't really like, yes, it suggested that she had like left one boyfriend and was maybe now with a new boyfriend, but like none of the characters were over sexualized. Never once was sex the reason that teens were being punished. And I appreciated that. I thought that was a refreshing change from the slasher model. Yeah, they and I think that that was that was a that was a conscious choice because they said the film, uh, the producers of the film talked about how they were like, 
Uh, we wanted to make sure that this film wasn't in about any way sex, drugs, or rock and roll, because they had already done that with the Friday the 13th remake. And they were like, that was for there, so this is something completely different. We don't want to do, we don't want to link it back to that kind of horror. And and that's funny that you mentioned the Friday the 13th, because that was the exact film I was thinking of, because that one, like, has, it has, like, all the, the, like, drunken dancing at a party that no one else is dancing at. Check. <laughs> like, it, it does all of that. But there were a couple of things that really bothered me. One of them was minor, but it was like indicative of of a bigger narrative world building problem. And that was Nancy and Quentin find the photo and then Nancy's mom in front of Quentin, which like how awkward of a conversation would that have been for him is like, by the way, you were all molested. And it's like and we didn't want you to know. And I just thought that was such a weird, such a weird thing to like. I can't even imagine. Can you imagine going over to a friend's house and, and like having to sit there through this like confrontation where a parent tells your friend and you, yeah, (laughs) that they've been, and you have been molested. Like (laughs) it just was such a weird, a weird scene. And I felt this was indicative of, of bigger structural problems. It was a weird scene that because of this film, refuse that you take everything so seriously and their version of serious means really everything is really in and it's really gritty and nobody's actually feeling their big emotions i I was like this is a this the stakes are high here why is nobody treating this with any sense of urgency and i was like oh it's because you've interpreted realism as being really quiet and whispery i hate that and that's what this film is it does at the expense of Fun. They couldn't have had the the tone of, of the earlier nightmares and have had it be about explicit molestation, right? That, that those. So I'm glad that they didn't try to, to merge those because that would have been even creepier. Tried for the levity of, of Freddy, but he was also a molester. So at least they, they ixnade that. But you're right. It, it felt whispery and, and, and it was weird. Yeah, I think it's just it comes down to this obsession with realism, particularly in a horror franchise that's about going into dreams, yeah. seems misplaced. And it seems like I could even get, like you want to make a, you want to, you're like, I want to ground Texas Chainsaw Massacre more in realism, I, I, I guess. Sure. Okay, whatever. You want the Friday the 13th one? Sure. I guess you can. But you want to ground the franchise that features a guy who can go into the headspace of people and in their dreams can torture them in all bizarre ways. And that's the one where you're like, no, no, I think what people really want is us to make this gritty and realistic. That's such a good point. And, and I think that's why, why so much of it feels weird, right? And I think it's important to talk about all that's lost by having Freddie not be played by Robert England. The guy who they have, who they brought in to replace him, uh, Jackie Earl Haley, as I had mentioned, did not enjoy, does not like um, the original England performance, actually said that he intentionally wanted to do something very different than that because he didn't like it, um, and wanted to come from this darker place, he thought, and he, he really kind of like compares the England performance to this silly 
character-y performance where he's like, you put on your silly voice and then you do your thing. He was like, I'm a real actor who I found my voice through the natural process of performance in being in the moment. And I'm, and I'm like, I know. <laughs> and I think that that is noticeable. Haley isn't having any fun with the killing and the world that's going on here. And as a result, I don't really have any fun with his performance. I don't really... His performance is totally fine for what it is, which is clearly how he views it, this sophisticated movie monster. But it is fundamentally a bad Freddy Krueger performance because the core of Freddy was that, yeah, he's a really, really bad guy, but he also really likes what he's doing. He loves to, he loves his killing. He loves messing with people. Even when things are bad, he's kind of still, it doesn't, no skin off his back. That's really, really clever because I was, as you were talking, I was trying to figure out where you were going to go because obviously we can't have him be funny if he's going to be a molester, right? Like we should not be laughing at that. But what you said is what's missing. And that is, is that if he's not going to be funny, which he can't be with this script, he cannot be a funny version of, of Freddy. And so they could have taken just said, he's going to still be dark. He's not going to be funny, but he is going to be playing games with them and, and really done some interesting thing with like childhood games uh, and made it like, so that we're reminded that childhood games are always really weird. Right. And that like all of childhood is this really weird, like kind of nightmarish space where like, we're constantly being told to not let bed bugs bite. And we're like constantly playing games where we hide from people and hope that they don't find us. And in a film, that is all about Freddy Krueger and his nightmares, he honestly doesn't really have much of a presence in this film because he's just another kind of part of the set pieces. Yeah. He's not even really physically there most of the time. They've digitally replaced his face with CGI. As much as he talks about the process for how he found his voice, they ultimately replaced most of it with a voice modulator in post-production anyway. You're right, he fades into the background Sometimes literally, but certainly figuratively. My other big complaint, and this will actually tie in the other article, is that we talked about this with Wes Craven, that one of the things we really like about him and about his crafting of, of in particular, Nancy, is that he understands that there is trauma in being a final girl, but that there is also power. Nightmare franchise and the Scream franchise are all about powerful, strong women being the true final girl, which means not only the victim, but the savior. I just was appalled by the sheer amount of this film was about men and, and like in weird ways. So one of the other scenes that I was like, I don't understand what's happening right now. Chris is like, hey, I've been having these weird dreams. And she pauses and he's like, of a man with knives for fingers. And she's like, yes. And then he's like, shh, he's like, stop, stop thinking about it and it'll be okay. And the music was really weird. I thought for a second that he was going to become like a bad guy independent of Freddy. And instead he's like, hush little lady. And then Quentin is like, hey, I've done all this research, Nancy, because heaven forbid you have done research. And then like Nancy's mom wears glasses. So, and her name is listed as a doctor, but like, there's no discussion of that. And Nancy's mom is the one that's like, I don't know, maybe we shouldn't do this after all. And the men are like, hush, little lady, we're killing him. And just from start to finish, it was such an such an insult to, to women. Just such an insult. 
everything just happens to these female characters. All of they're all passive characters as opposed to active characters. They don't. None of the plot of the film is influenced by the female characters' actions. The action of the plot happens to to them, and I think that in a in a franchise that has historically, even in the weaker films, like even in like four, five, and six, where things get like pretty dicey, one of the things that you can always count on is that they are going to have strong attempts at developed female yes. characters who are. They attempt to write as active protagonists as opposed to passive protagonists. Yeah, Alice, like, literally becomes a dream master. Literally. She is elevated to the exact same level as Freddy Krueger. She is the only thing that is capable of balancing him. She has to be elevated to, she is literally elevated to that god status of final girl, and only then is she able to take take him down once she recognizes that she was always as powerful as him. And this film, that does not happen. And it's made worse, actually, by the ending that they chose to have be the theatrical ending versus the alternative ending that is available, like, on the DVDs. So Kyle Christensen wrote an article called Look What You Did to Me, and he put the word anti in parentheses, anti-feminism, an extra textuality in the remake of A Nightmare on Elm Street. And what I find really fascinating about this article and the reason that I think it's worth worth mentioning is that his emphasis is really in talking about the difference between the theatrical ending and the the alternative ending so if you remember at the end of the theatrical there's a moment where freddie yells don't turn away look at me look at what you did to me right and it's the burns and scars that cover freddie's face and so that's what nancy quote did to him then she pulls him into the real world and she stabs him with knives that she's made. Yeah, the, it's a, the paper cutter blade. I struggle sometimes with feminist readings of, of horror because there's a lot of stuff that's about the phallic. And also, like, again, if it is commonplace enough that we are like, it's often, we often have the, the final weapon be so phallic, and this is an, a common enough discourse in anyone who is like trenched into final girl discourse, then why do we see it lazily trotted out here again? Is it just because that is what you do and you have to have Nancy kill with a with a phallic-like blade? Yeah. And then it's not even really that that it got, helps them escape. They're then rescued by police officers and firefighters who are ultimately there to save the day, which is yet another acknowledgement that this is not anywhere close to the same type of nightmare franchise that we were once had because the systems are all really great here everything's good except for this one wacky killer society is good we've got our good police officers and firefighters here to save the day i'm I'm gonna say this and i'm gonna say that i'm not entirely sure i buy into all of this but i do buy into the idea that you can read it this way so in the theatrical ending we have this large bleeding gash that opens in Freddie's neck. And Christensen, and this is where I get a little bit like, really? Says that this can symbolize a vaginal opening on the now, I'm reading from this, on the now phallus lacking Freddie. See, his mutilation of the masculine Freddie then is not so much a rebuking of the slasher film's penchant for female victimization and castration 
as it is a projection of the image of the vaginal gaping wound onto another through phallic violence. And then a little bit later, he says, with this punctuating act of violence, Nancy's performance of masculinity as powerful, adopting the phallic paper cutter blade, and femininity as weak, Freddie now being this castrated, quote, bitch, because she calls him that, is complete. So I do agree with this, that Christian is saying that um, in the theatrical conclusion, the way that Nancy becomes powerful is by having these elements of, of masculine power, um, the ability to to stab, the, the ability to take without asking, the ability to, to minimize someone that we have just been told her is bad, right? We just spent the whole film being told that that is a problem, and then she does it, and we're like, huzzah. And then... Freddie is made weak because now he's woman. Exactly, so because he doesn't a, have a phallus anymore. Yeah, so is that, wait, I'm confused. This is the argument of why the theatrical ending is anti-feminist. Beautiful, agreed. So then he says, but let's talk about the ending that you could have seen on, on the DVD and, and the ending that they could have gone with. So a lot of it is similar, except there are some interesting moments where after Nancy pulls uh, Freddie back into the real world, there's actually this shot where you see a triumphant stare from Nancy and a defeated shock from Fred. And it's not a very long moment, but you see that before Freddie says, clever little girl, you pulled me out. So first, we're already having this moment of like the tables are turning, right? But then, and this is really interesting. So apparently in the dream world, Freddie is like momentarily upset by how horrified she is of him like preparing to stab her and rape her again. And so his face turns back to his un unmarked, unblemished form. And he's like, you know, is this better? And so there's these weird sort of things. So, so I want to point that out because this is not a flawless conclusion. This is just a better conclusion. When they're back in the real world, instead of Freddie being the one that says, look at me, look at what you've done, referring to his burn marks, Nancy says, look at me. And then he hesitates for a second. And she says, look at me again. And then she says, look at what you did to me. And so Christian says, in demanding to be looked at, Nancy automatically also demands to be gazed at. She is controlling the gaze, but in a rather paradoxical approach that might put her at further risk. So for this moment, she's being asked to be looked at differently and not just as an object. And then she beats him with the bat. A non, a non-phallic weapon. Or a less phallic, right? A less phallic weapon, sure. It is still phallic shaped, but it's not intended to penetrate, right? That that would be the difference, right? So she's beating him with, with something that she cannot penetrate him with. Um, he says, you're still my little Nancy. She responds, I'm all grown up now. And she calls him a name, but it's not bitch. And that's important because she's not demoting him to a, a negative female word. And then she knocks over some paint cans and he gets set on fire. Christensen says, in this alternate ending, Nancy does not seek out masculine security by turning to Quentin or a symbolic masculine weapon in order to overthrow the killer. Her identification as a woman is also reaffirmed in her use of fire to kill Fred because the fire is not penetrative in its functionality and does not breach his body as Nancy's paper cutter does in the theatrical ending. And so this ending, in his opinion, and he, again, there's some phrases in this article that I'm like, I can't go that far. Like he talks about the vaginal fire. Can't, can't go there. That's, is a step too far for me in terms of, of making that argument. But he does say that the alternate Indian solidifies Nancy's womanly strength and perseverance. And I think it certainly reads that way. 
again, I think vaginal fire is a little far, but we lost that, right? We lost this opportunity to actually make this be powerful and to have her be a true final girl. She just happens to be the last girl that lives. She's not a final girl. And I think that ending would have been substantially better than the ending that we have gotten. Although I don't think it would have rectified many of the larger sins of the film. It would have just then been like, rather than have been actively sexist and embracing and misogynistic tropes of the genre, it would have been like, no, no, no. With the limited amount of choices that we are making here to change, we are gonna change for the better here. But they didn't ultimately do that. And I think and I think it's weird that they shot it and they had it included as a deleted scene, but then for the theatrical version, they were like, we've gotta go with the safer, more misogynistic uh, ending. But I, th- I think it goes back to, to all of them having this like fundamentally different experience with the text we did. Because Mara, who played Nancy, said that talked about how she felt like Nancy really starts to open up. And by the end, you see, this is a quote from her, you really see what she's made of and really becomes a strong woman. And it's like, I don't think that I saw the same Nancy that you thought you were portraying. I, I don't think so either. I, no, I, I don't. I'm, I guess I'm confused as to where that journey was. Well, she says it's because of her connection with Quentin and how she begins to learn to open up and reach out to people. But she's not reaching out to people. She's reaching out to a man. So I don't know. I I just back to what you said at the beginning about like what they thought they were fixing. Their understanding of this text is so fundamentally different from ours. I think I think you're absolutely right. And as a result, I think this is a nightmare film that will only satisfy people whose chief complaints with the nightmare films were that it was perhaps too unrealistic or uh, it was just too much. It was a uh, it's just silly. I don't. I don't understand what's going on there because I you you can't. I'll give him that. Uh, you I could not possibly call this film silly. We are saddened to have reached the end of our examination of the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, but we are excited because there are other franchises that we can now start exploring. So that's that part is that that's the like silver lining to the dark stormy clouds. Uh, Anthony, what are we going to be looking at next? Get ready to scream because we're going to be talking about Wes Craven's original scream in our very next episode. Thank you for listening to our nightmares. And have a spooktacular day. <laughs>